In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. This morning, we are continuing once more our series through the book of Joshua. Our text for today, because we didn't get to it quite last week, we're going to pick up with the second half of last week's text and do our best to deal with the text today. So it's going to be uh, Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 all the way through 28. Um, Focusing, we'll probably stop around 25, but this is Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 through 28 or 8 through 25 uh, for our reading this morning. We're going to read Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 through 15. Would you join me now in standing for the reading of God's word? I'll read our text for us in its entirety. When I finish reading the text, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. One final time, our text for today is Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 all the way through 28, focusing right now on verses 8 through 15. The Bible says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At the time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, Stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel." So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Let's go ahead and jump in. In your notes, I've written the following. Notice that in every victory of Israel, it is the Lord who supernaturally secures Israel's success. In the case of Jericho, the Lord caused the outer walls to crumble. In the case of Ai, Joshua holds out his javelin, and as he does, Israel is given supernatural strength to overcome their adversaries. And now, in the case of the five kings of the Amorites, the Lord does three supernatural feats. Number one, the Lord sends the enemies of Israel into a supernatural sense of dread. The Bible says he puts them into a panic. Number two, the Lord rains down large stones from heaven. So much so that the Bible says that more of the enemies of Israel died from the hailstones that fell from the sky than actually dying from the sword of Israel. And then number three, Joshua speaks and calls out to the Lord and speaks in such a way that the sun and the moon would stand still 
And the Lord, in fact, answers this petition that supernaturally the Lord lengthens the time, the literal time of the day, so that Israel can gain vengeance on all their enemies. And we'll look into that a little bit more. What, the, what we see as the overarching premise is that whether it's Jericho or Ai or now this collective battle, the five different Amorite kings coming together to take on Gibeon that made a covenant with Israel, in all of these battles, it is the Lord who wins the battle. It is the Lord who grants victory and success. In every one of these battles, Israel only gains victory because God supernaturally provides for them strength. In the one case where Israel tried to gain victory in their own strength after defeating Jericho, Jericho, taking about 3,000 of the fighting men of Israel up against Ai, which was a smaller tribe of only 12,000 people total, well, Israel got defeated. They were sent running. Uh, they were retreating. And then they had to pray and go to the Lord and repent of sin being in the camp. In the case of Achan, who had taken some of the devoted things from Jericho that he not he was not supposed to take. And so they had to cleanse the camp. They had to seek the Lord. They had to uh, they had to um, devote themselves back to the Lord and then follow the Lord's specific instruction in that battle with AI. Take all the fighting men. It was about 30,000 men. They set an ambush and there's still this supernatural element. They don't just beat AI because now they're taking all of their soldiers with them. Uh, but they also, there's this element of Joshua holding out his javelin. And as he holds out his javelin pointed towards the city of Ai, uh, Israel is granted from the Lord a supernatural sense of strength and they are given victory. So Jericho, Ai, and now Israel coming to the defense of Gibeon, who made a covenant under pretense, under deception, but a covenant nonetheless with Israel. They're coming to Gibeon's aid, fighting off five collective kings, five tribes now joining together, Amorite tribes trying to take on Gibeon and ultimately defeat Israel. So this is three major battles. In all three of these battles, we see that Israel is ultimately victorious, but Israel is only victorious because the Lord grants a supernatural strength and power. And so in the battle that we're looking at today with the five Amorite kings, we see three supernatural elements. We see that God, number one, he sends them into a panic. The enemies of Israel, these five kings and the five tribes he represent, this is not just uh, the, the typical um, expected sense of, of nervousness or worry and going into battle, knowing that if you're going into any battle, it is quite possible that you might lose your very life. No, it's, it's deeper than that. The Lord sends them into utter panic, utter dread. So that's the first supernatural um, exploit that the Lord provides is that the enemies are already in disarray, already beginning to scatter because they are filled with a sense of supernatural dread. Secondly, as Israel begins to drive them out and pursuing them, in order for them not to get away from Israel, as they're on the retreat, uh, God sends down large hailstones from heaven, that is from the skies, and the hailstones, the text says, actually take out more of the Amorites than Israel is able to take out by the sword. That's the second element. The third element, in addition to all this, if that wasn't supernatural and miraculous enough, is that the sun and the moon stand still in the sky in order to lengthen the time, the literal time of the day, so that Israel can do inflict even greater, or we might say more thorough damage on their enemies so that they can't get away, re regroup, 
and ultimately come back against Israel again. Uh, the Lord, in his mercy, he lengthens the day so that more of his enemies, Israel's enemies, can be defeated. Uh, and this is because uh, if they don't defeat them now, they're going to have to battle them again. If, if many of the fighting men from these five Amorite tribes are able to make it all the way back to the safety and the refuge of their cities, they'd be able to regroup and, and then mount another attack or at least be on the defensive and it would be much more difficult for Israel to counter with a siege. It's much easier to, to siege a city that's mostly empty than it is to siege a city that's reinforced because you missed most of the men in the battle. They got away and they regrouped in their cities where they now have new supplies, new artillery. They're able to rest and then are able to ultimately hold out with their outer walls and mount a counterattack to where Israel would take days or weeks in order to defeat them. So that's the picture. That's what we have going on. God supernaturally uh, providing the victory for Israel in every battle that they faced thus far since crossing the Jordan River. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out that I think are interesting. Uh, first, it does remind me of Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 through 8, that says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is the secret to Israel's success. It is not their might. It is not their own physical strength. It is not their numbers. It is not their strategies. The secret to their success, the only reason they emerge victorious again and again is because their hope is in the Lord. Some trust in walls. Some trust in defensive measures. They trust in chariots. They trust in giants. They trust in this and trust in that. Uh, but ultimately, our hope, like Israel, is in the Lord. The Lord is the one who secures for us the victory. Now, two other things that I want to draw out. One, six-day creation. It's not necessarily blatantly in the text, but I don't think that it's far-fetched to get this from the text. Uh, I think that it's worth looking at. Notice this in verse, let's see, verse um, 14, I believe it is. Yep, there has been no day like it before or after since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, what is it? What voice of a man did the Lord heed as it were? Well, backing up one verse prior, verse 13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. It did not hurry to set. So, so whatever time had already elapsed in that day, and it seems as though that day was already not midday, not noon, the sun overhead, but it was already, the day was already at a close. So it was probably sometime in the evening near dusk. And so you've already had the majority of a day and now you have a whole nother day in, in that same time period without the sun setting. And so going back to verse 14 now, there has been no day like it before or since. Well, one thing that I think we can glean from this particular verse is that there has never been a day after that that was longer than 24 hours. There is also likewise, according to the text, there has been no day like it before. There has never been a day before this day that was more or less than 24 hours. And so when the Bible says that God created 
the heavens and the earth in six days. These are not thousand year long days. There has never been a day before or since. Before Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still and lengthen the literal time of this day, there has never been another day like that since, and there never has been a day before that. Every day before this day and after that day has been a normal day. So to read the Bible and say, hey, that's a day, that's 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours, Genesis 1 and 2, a thousand years is ridiculous. That's not how we read the Bible. It's a day. It has always been a day. God created the earth, not only in six days, but six literal 24 hour days. I believe that that is the proper position. And if we get the beginning of the story, that is the biblical narrative. If we get the beginning wrong, we'll get everything else wrong as well. The beginning matters. One of the reasons that it matters, just for the record, one of the problems with theistic evolution, which I do believe is not just off, but I believe is a heresy. I believe that it ultimately is an enemy of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why theistic evolution is a problem is because, and it's both most basic fundamental assertion, what it insists is that ultimately sin is not the cause of death, but that death is actually uh, ordained and orchestrated by God himself long before sin entered the world, long before people were even created, Adam and Eve, Death is actually, um, it originates not with the sin of man rebelling against God and the good creation that he had made, but actually death is orchestrated and it originates with God himself and death is God's tool by which he makes man. The, the basic thing that you need to understand about evolution is this. You have two happy, healthy people standing tall and proud on top of a pile of millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of skulls dead, right? How did people come about? Death, 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 death. Homo erectus, he didn't make it. Lots, lots of them dead, right? They're homo this and homo that and homo, they're all dead. And so God created Adam and Eve, but he created them over millions and millions and millions of years. And it's not just time. That's not the only issue, but he didn't just do it over millions and millions of years. He did it over millions and millions and millions of death, dead bodies, Again and again and again and again. So what brought uh, death into the world? The sin of man? Is God's word true? That the day you eat of it, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die? Well, according to theistic evolution, God is a liar. Sin is not what introduced death, but God actually introduced death. Death, as a, a, to, to use a turn of phrase, death was alive and well long before sin ever happened. Long before Adam and Eve ever were made in the first place. And that's one thing in Genesis 1 and 2. It's already problematic enough. But when we cross-reference later on with the apostolic writings in the New Testament picking up on the created order and the Genesis narrative, namely, I think of Romans chapter 5 and the apostle Paul. Paul says, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's infallible word, he says that through one man's sin, all died so too through one man's righteousness, that is Jesus Christ, we live. Well, ultimately, all that is flipped on its head. Uh, we didn't die because of Adam as a federal head representing all his posterity, all of humanity, and his choice to commit cosmic treason and rebel against God. And through his sin, that introduced death. 
And the whole human race is now plagued under the curse with death. And Jesus as the second and final Adam reverses the curse so that we might have new life and eternal life through faith in him. No, that's not it. If, if death didn't enter the world by one man's sin, namely Adam, then, then you're, not just, you're not just dealing with the creation narrative and how God made the world. You're dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To embrace theistic evolution is ultimately to deny the gospel. It is to deny the gospel. So, six literal days, death entered the world by one man and his sin, and not millions and millions and millions and millions of years before that. It's worth noting. All right, one more thing. Uh, this, is, this is kind of a fun one, but uh, let me just say on that note, I, I am completely comfortable with being mocked and ridiculed for having uh, just a fundamentalist attitude when it comes to just plain beliefs in the word of God. Um, so this idea of a day being elongated and the sun and moon standing still, right? Some of us in our modern minds, we might be thinking, how does that happen? Well, to be fair, you know, to the, to the flat earthers out there, it's real easy if you believe in a flat earth. I mean, honestly, it's just, you know, you stop the sun and stop the moon. You don't have to deal with the rotation of the earth. It's just the earth is flat. These things are moving in the sky and God stops them. And let me just say an, an, another piece here. Um, for anybody who does embrace flat earth theory or whatever, I disagree with you. So I just want to make that clear. I'm not a flat earther. However, you are in fantastic company. You are not a heretic. I would much rather the members of our church believe that the earth is flat than believe in theistic evolution. There's a lot of guys who believe the earth was flat who are currently in the presence of God in heaven. There are no guys, in my opinion, who believe in theistic evolution who are in the presence of God in heaven. So I'd rather believe the earth is flat than believe that God created everything out of the primordial soup and that you know, fish became people and all that happened with billions and billions of skulls. That, that dog don't hunt, right? So flat earth, we can work with it. I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong, but we can work with it. All that being said, how does it work with a modern understanding of the earth being a sphere and rotating on its axis? Well, I mean, it wouldn't be the sun and moon stopping. It would be the earth actually stopping its rotation. If the earth stopped in its rotation, that's gonna really mess things up. Are we gonna fly off the surface of the earth? Well, I think the simplest answer, and we'll have to move on for the sake of time, is this. If God can create the earth in the first place, I, I think he can stop its rotation and make sure that we all stay on, on, on this ball that's floating in the sky. So the, the simple answer, when in doubt, um, just like you teach your kids, you know, what's, what's the answer? Jesus, right? So when in doubt, the answer to this question, how did the, the sun and the moon stop? If the earth really is a sphere and the sun and the moon aren't, aren't moving in the first place, but we're actually rotating around it, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus can do it. He did it somehow. He's done crazier stuff than that. Uh, it, it shouldn't plague us. It shouldn't bother us. Uh, we, we serve a miraculous God. He made everything out of nothing. If he can make everything, if you can believe that, then he made everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, then stopping the rotation of the earth and keeping everything alive at the same time uh, is, is kind of pretty, pretty small potatoes compared to everything out of nothing. If everything out of nothing is the starting place, then everything else seems pretty, pretty simple. All right, now we're ready to move on. So the, the first thing that we've just covered is that the Lord is mighty in battle. 
The battle belongs to the Lord and he's the one who gives the victory. It's not merely numbers. It's not merely pragmatism. It's not merely human strategy. These things are good and permissible. But ultimately, it's the Lord's battle. He is the one who is mighty in battle. If we don't have the Lord on our side, we cannot expect to win. In fact, if we are against the Lord, then in his judgment, the Lord actually might strengthen. We see this multiple times throughout scripture. The Lord is perfectly willing to strengthen our adversaries, even when we outnumber them so that they can have victory over us as as an instrument being used by God in his providence as a rod of his discipline for our unbelief and rebellion. The Lord has done this countless times. Well, he'll raise up pagan nations and he'll bless them, not because they're living in obedience to him, but he will strengthen them temporarily. And when I say temporarily, I mean, perhaps in some instances, as we see biblically, 400 years. And for 400 years, he might strengthen a pagan nation simply so that that pagan nation might be used in God's providence, his sovereignty as his rod to discipline Israel. And that principle has not changed. You and I, if you have faith in Jesus, you are Israel in the truest, eternal, ultimate sense not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, according to the promise. And God still to this day in his sovereignty will raise up empires. He will raise up uh, enemies. He will raise up adversaries to his church, especially when his church is in rebellion, when his church is in the moment of apostatizing, when his people, Israel, spiritual Israel, is not walking in step with obedience to the truth of the gospel, God will raise up adversaries and in raising them up, he is blessing them, increasing them, but not because of their obedience. He's doing it despite their disobedience so that they might be used in his sovereignty to discipline his church. And we see that, we see that in the case of the nation state of Israel under the old covenant in the old Testament. And I believe that we see that even to this day with nations. I think we're seeing that right now in the West. I think that we've seen as the West is apostatizing, turning its back on arguably 1,500 years of Christendom, if we go all the way back to Constantine, at least 1,000 years if we go back to King Alfred and common law, that the West is turning its back on its Christian heritage. And that doesn't mean that Christian heritage was always flawless. Of course, there was sin. There's plenty of sin, but, but we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater we, we've adopted this enlightenment, postmodern mentality where you just problematize everything into the dust, right? Where any kind of authority, any kind of tradition, and you just, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. The biggest, the biggest concern, uh, Wes turned, turned me on to this. Yesterday, he called me out publicly. He knew he could get me to do something if he said it, you know, not just in a text message, but on Twitter. And so he was like, hey, you need to do the reading, Joel. And, uh, and I was like, all right, I'll do the reading. And he's right. So there's a book. Uh, called Return of the Strong Gods. And, and what it's emphasizing, the strong gods versus weak gods, com- comparing and contrasting, it's saying not, not necessarily gods as actual deities, uh, but it's saying in terms of traditions. So the strong gods would be things like faith, church, religion, patriarchy, fathers, family, those kinds of things. Weak gods would be um, the Enlightenment, uh, it, w- it would be uh, Freud, it would be Marx, it would be Darwin. It, and ultimately, the comparing and contrast is between strong and weak, but, but another way to word it is between closed and open societies and traditions. And basically, the post-war sentiment is what the author is getting at. 
He's saying that we have a very novel and very recent phenomenon in the way that people think. The way that Westerners think is not the way we always have. It's a very recent phenomenon, and it's all in light of the first and particularly the second world war. Um, that one of our biggest concerns and, 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 and one of the, the biggest steering mechanisms for every decision we make, how we craft education, how we craft our traditions, how we craft our politics, how we craft economies and markets, all of it is geared towards this. Don't ever let there be an Adolf Hitler again. We are terrified of the potential of a strong authoritarian leader. And just for the record, I'm not a flat earther. I'm also not pro-Hitler. Just, just to make that clear, I think you guys know that, but somebody you know, will, will make it go viral on YouTube and, and they'll say, see, he's pro-Hitler. Um, I'm, I'm not pro-Hitler. But what we're recognizing, I think, is that the pendulum has overswung, we've overcompensated, and in the name of inclusivity, in the name of uh, what we've rejected is any kind of transcendent absolute truths. Because a guy who makes strong, absolute, universal, authoritarian truth claims, well, that guy might destroy the world. But what we found is that weak, empathetic, inclusive men, they're quite capable of destroying the world as well. And so there is going to be, the argument from this book, and I think he's right on, is, is it um, not that we have even so much a choice. He's saying it's an inevitability. If you look at human history far enough, it's the same pattern. There will be a return to the strong gods. Meaning again, faith, tradition, religion, patriarchy, strong men, strong military, strong families, a classical education, right? Where, where you're not replacing Plato with, with some, you know, gender studies or whatever, like there's going to be a return back to that. There already is. It's already shifting. Here's the only question is, will there be a strong biblical Christianity as the pendulum starts swinging back from the weak gods to the strong gods? Let's, let's say it like this. Here's, here's trans and kids. Here's Adolf Hitler. Okay. Well, just making it real simple. As it's shifting back, We'd like to not go all the way back to Adolf Hitler. I think that's a, you know, I think we, we could all agree on that. That's, you know, that would be a good goal. Um, but we also don't like this. We got to go back. It will go back. So the question is, as it's going back, what is the stopping point that'll keep it here and, and to where we don't overreact and go there? The, the stopping point, do you know what it is? It's biblical, historic Christianity. That's the stopping point. And yet what you hear, and, and this is the crazy thing, you hear this from Christians. What you hear is oh, Christian nationalism. That's, that's ethnocentric nationalism. That's, that's the Third Reich all over. No, no, no. No, that's what keeps us from going there. The very thing that, that you're trying to, to, to deconstruct, the thing that you're attacking is saying it's, it's an overreaction. It's extreme. You know, this is just a fed op. You know, like uh, anybody who believes in Christian nationalism is just an FBI, you know, plant. No, no, no. That's to stop it from going too far. That's, that's the barrier. Um, biblical patriarchy, uh, a biblical political theology that views nations and, and kings that they actually have, there's a God above them, that the law is king, lex rex and not the king is law, that, that um, kiss the son, Psalm 2, lest he be angry and his wrath quickly kindled while you're in the way. Like all these kinds of things at every single level, these things, a classical education, reading the, uh, the, the patriarchs and all these, this is... Um, the, the, the healthy, middle, middle's not a good word, the healthy, well-rounded, 
biblical option that God provides for us. Tradition matters. Fathers matter. Mothers matter. Children matter. Education matters. And it's not all about inclusivity. It's not the Montessori, you know, well, what does your kid want to be? They're a blank slate. We're children led. Children lead here. Children lead here. The Bible talks about that. Where children lead, that's a sign of God's judgment. Children leading, that's not the brag you think it is. Like the children lead in our society. Well, then you failed. Congratulations. No, no, no. Parents lead children. Jonah says, I think I'm a unicorn. And you say, that's great to pretend, but you're not. (laughs) You know, like you're not child led. You're parent led. So strong parents, strong fathers, strong mothers, having seen children as a blessing and not a burden, seeking to have many children, not being overly legalistic and putting an exact number. You have to have 8.6. But but in general, seeing that children are a blessing from the Lord, returning to a classical education and not these these modern um, social constructs that, that are you just want. Yeah, right now, our education system is you would go into, especially higher education, you would go into school and, and maybe, maybe you, you really like... Um, Maybe you really like Homer, right? Maybe you really like Socrates and you realize, okay, this guy's not a Christian, but there's some really good things there. Well, the goal of higher education is that you would come in and then you would take particular specific courses on uh, these time periods and this civilization and these people that were influential and shaped history that you really enjoy. And by the time you're done with four years, you'll hate them. That's the goal. The goal is not to learn them or to, to, to grow in appreciation. The, the goal is to see how, well, Socrates was, you know, he was misogynistic, you know, and Plato, I, I, he's probably a racist, you know, and like, and by the time you're done, um, you, you hate every foundation of Western civilization there's ever been. There's going to be a return to the strong gods, the weak gods being um, uh, things like critical theory, things like um, anti-religion, the inclusivity, um, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. That's the weak gods. And, and because we are so afraid of nationalistic, you know, going too far, right? With Germany went a little bit too far, you know? And so we were so afraid of those kinds of things and the terror of war, people coming back from the battlefield, seeing the, the, the atrocities that had taken place. I'm sympathetic. There were real problems. But in that, there was an over-cowardly reaction, never again. But in this determination, this dedication, commitment to never again what we ultimately decided as an entire Western civilization. Germany definitely decided this, but, but even America, um, what we decided, especially everywhere in Europe, is we will never allow a strong, especially male leader to arise ever again. Ever. If that guy, if, he, if he's got charisma and, and he's not just smiley and nice, but he actually believes that there are things that are true and false, black and white, right? If, 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 he, if there's a guy like that and he starts cropping up on the scene, we will, everyone will unite to take that guy down. I mean, four different indictments, whatever, right? We'll take that guy down. Now, give me, you know, don't misunderstand me. Uh, Donald Trump would not be qualified to be uh, an elder in our church. And, and I'd have to sit down and talk to him. I have a sneaking suspicion. I'm not going to make any definitive claim. I don't know the guy, but I do have my suspicion is that he wouldn't be qualified to be a member either, that he, he's, he might not even be regenerate. But my point is this, I'm grateful for how God used him. Incredibly grateful for how God used him. Not particularly 2020, but the three years leading up to that, fantastic, in my opinion. And, and all that being said, here's my point. He, he is that kind of man. 
whether, whether he's a, a wonderful Christian man or not, it, it doesn't matter. The point is he is masculine. He makes truth claims. He just tells it like it is. And there's a reason that it's because of that, that the whole world gathered together and said, we've got to take him out. In fact, I'm personally surprised that he's still alive. I'm surprised there hasn't been some kind of successful assassination or something like that. And that is the post-war sentiment. So when I talk about the post-war sentiment, it's this idea that, that strong men destroy the world and that a strong nationalistic sense of heritage and pride, that destroys the world. And truth claims that are universal and definitive destroys the world. Instead, what we need is an open society. We need open borders. We need open, uh, open minds, open hearts, open education, open this, open that. And, and, and we've done that for approximately, you know, 80, 80 years or so. And, uh, and it has not been good. And, and again, the solution is not to go all the way back to 1940s, you know, Third Reich, Germany. That's not the solution. The solution is the Bible. Absolute truth claims, strong fathers, uh, a sense of, of understanding nations, that their borders have been set by God and their times, having a pride in your nation, having natural affections that we love our neighbors all over the world, but we do have a sense of, of, of particular obligation to our family, our country. These are good things. And, and if you don't have them, here's the deal. If, if every expression, so for instance, to change another example, if every expression of the church, the evangelical church, when it comes to men and women is, is egalitarianism, it's just basically feminism. Like, yeah, the man, you know, he's, he's ahead of his wife. What does that mean? Well, in practice, what that means is nothing. <laughs> you know, what does it mean for him to have authority? No authority. Like if, if that's what evangelicalism offers, and it does 100%, um, then what you're going to have is Andrew Tate. That's, what, that's just, that's how it's going to work. Because men aren't crazy, right? Men know if I marry a woman, there's about a 60% chance she'll ruin my life. And all the courts, our entire legal system is geared towards her. She'll take the kids, she will win. Whether she's in the wrong or not, it doesn't matter. She, she'll win. She'll take all my money, all my children, this, that. I mean, the advice that you see from these guys, and they're not Christians, so I'm not, I'm not praising these guys, but you, the advice they see, uh, you see from them that they're giving to young men, and millions of young men are listening to them, by the way, and Christians should be aware of this, is they're saying, hey, you know, by, when you turn 18, you should get a vasectomy, never get married, never be tied down, do this, do that. And people are listening to it because men feel hopeless. And, and your choices right now, these, these are the choices. You've got Andrew Tate, who is godless, or Russell Moore as the Christian option. There's got to be another option. And I would suggest that the option is biblical patriarchy. The option is scripture. The option is strong men, um, but who, who model Christ-likeness that actually do have authority. But at the same time, also like Jesus, are willing to lay down their lives for their wives in love for them and for their children. That's the other option. If, but if that option is, is utterly absent, because all of evangelicalism, anytime a Christian man says, hey, I think biblical patriarchy might be biblical or this or that, and the rest of evangelicalism says, misogynist, misogynist, and then those guys go dark, they go silent, and that option's no longer there. These, 
you know, functional egalitarian, but technically I'm a complementarian e evangelicals, they're not going to win. They, they can maybe beat the guys in the middle, the biblical patriarchy guys. They could, they could cancel us. They could silence us. But if they do, we're the only barrier between them and Andrew Tate because they're not going to win. They don't have a viable worldview. It's not viable. You know why Islam is so successful? It's demonic. It's wrong. It's false, but it's viable. It believes in marriage. It believes in strong men. It believes that children are a blessing. It believes in female submission. I think it goes overboard. Again, I'm, I'm saying a lot of things. Not a fan of Hitler, not a fan of Islam, not a fan of Andrew Tate. All right, just again, the disclaimers here. But Islam is taking over the world. I watched a video just the other day with uh, some Islamic imams and they were, you know, and they were laughing and saying, Christians, please, you know, showing in London all these glorious Christian cathedrals and then taking, uh, taking the, the camera inside and it's a mosque. And they said, Christians, we, we love what you're doing. Um, keep building cathedrals because they're all just future mosques because you're weak and they're right. Christianity is weak. It's weak. Now, real biblical Christianity is a world-dominating force. It can't be stopped. It's invulnerable. But the Christianity that we have today LARPing around as biblical Christianity, it's weak. Islam will take it out. Now, it won't be taken out because within our ranks, there is a true remnant that trusts in Jesus Christ and he's the head of the church and he won't let his church fall away. So I have the utmost hope. But there are certain worldviews. My point is there are certain worldviews, the small gods includes, it's not viable. And then there are strong gods that are far more viable, actually. Islam would be an example of that. Far more viable. They're false. They're wrong. But they actually have a plan. They actually have viability, right? Secularism is a weak God. It's, it's an example of a weak God. It, it, it's not viable for no other reason because, because it doesn't even have a plan for procreation. The secularism has, has a timestamp. It has a shelf life. It's not gonna hang around. Secularism will beat itself. You don't even need Christianity to take out secularism. You need Christianity just to, so, so that the human race continues to exist once secularism takes itself out. Islam is not like that though, Howard. It is wrong. If you're, if, if you're a Muslim, you need Jesus. And apart from Jesus Christ, you will die and spend an eternity in hell. It is a false gospel with a false God, but it is viable. And what I mean by that is it doesn't reject God's created order. Any worldview that accepts nature and God's created order, those are the strong gods and they will persist. What we would like though, within the strong God array, within the pantheon or before the pantheon is Jesus Christ as the bulwark, stopping the madness and saying, here you are, this is your destination. Look no further. He is the strongest God there is. Follow him, his precepts, his word. It lends towards life, life everlasting and abundant life in this life as well. So, I can't even remember how I got on that. The point is the Lord is mighty in battle, also finishing the fight. All right, so running down the enemy. We don't finish fights anymore. We don't, but Israel did. 
And that's why God stops the sun and the moon and the sky. And he also sends through Joshua and his command, sends Israel to pursue all their adversaries unto the bitter end so that they could not make it back into their cities and mount up a new attack on a future day. This is verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. So put these big stones there. That way now the kings are locked in. Now you can go and help your brothers and pursue your enemies. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. That means run them down as they're on the run retreating. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into their fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. So the picture is what we saw in verses 8 through 15. The Lord is mighty in battle. He's the one who supernaturally gives success, and he puts the enemies of Israel in a panic, He causes great hailstones to rain rain down so that more die by the hailstones than by the sword of Israel. And then lastly, he lengthens the day so that they wouldn't just deal a great blow to their adversaries, but so that Israel could actually finish the fight. And now we see practically Joshua saying, all right, we've got the kings, the five kings of these five Amorite tribes. They ran and hid like cowards in a cave. Um, Instead of guarding them, let's get every man that we can, every fighting man to go and pursue the, the, the enemy uh, tribes that are on the retreat right now so they don't make it back to their cities. So we'll close this in with, uh, with large stones, this cave where the five kings are hidden. And then we can come back to this later. Now join your brothers and they pursue them. And it seems as though from the text, they kill most of the Amorite soldiers. A few, it says a remnant, make it back to their cities. But what we're meant to understand is that the few that make it back to their Amorite cities are so few that they won't be able to mount um, a counterattack and they'll, they'll fold uh, like a cheap suit under, you know, under siege from Israel. So it's like, all right, so now we can take out the cities. We'll do that on another day. Let's regroup back in Makeda, where the cave is, where the stones are, where the five kings are locked inside. Now, remember, as we're preaching through this, Joshua is a type of Christ. There's multiple different levels of, of symbolism, um, typology. And one of them is this. Joshua is a type of Christ, meaning he... he signifies in many ways Jesus. And what we have here is with Christ, um, we know the gospel narrative that Christ, he was crucified on a Roman cross and that he was uh, put into a tomb, a cave, and a stone was rolled in front of the mouth of the cave, right? And here we have Joshua, a type of Christ. He's not going into the tomb. He's not going into the cave, but he is subjecting his enemies, five other kings, and the stones are being rolled in front of the mouth of the cave so that they can't get out. The difference is this. You have five kings going into a tomb with stones rolled in front of it. And those five kings, they come out to be put to death under Joshua, who is a type of Christ who is stronger than they are. And yet in the gospel narrative, the antitype, who is Christ himself, he went into a tomb, a stone was rolled in front of that tomb, but he's not brought out of that tomb in order to be put to death. 
He goes in already dead and comes back out alive. The stone cannot hold him and he doesn't come out to be put to death, but he comes out to live and to live forevermore. That Jesus is the greater king. He is the king of all kings. And so it's beautiful, I think, seeing some of the parallels of the tomb, the cave, the stones, and five kings brought out to be put to death. One king, the king of kings, brought in already dead, but coming out alive and living forevermore. All right, continuing here, the last thing that I want us to focus on is that God placed dragons and giants in this world precisely so that we can slay them. That's why they're here. Like sometimes, I, I forget who said it. it was, I think it was at a Grace Agenda conference at Christ Church. But somebody was talking about education and classical education and training children. And they said, you know, it, it's nerve-wracking as a parent thinking that the world that we grew up in is not the world that our children are, are growing up in. That, that, that things were, you know, there was always sin, but, but things are far less safe today than they were 50 years ago, than they were even just 20 years ago. Right? I mean, even with your children playing outside, there's, there's certain precautions you have to take that when you were a kid, your parents didn't take it. It's not because your parents were negligent. It's not because they didn't love you. It's because the world was safer. So you just go out and run around and do this and do that and be home by, you know, the mom comes out with a dinner bell or whatever. You're home by five and, and nobody's worried. Nobody's worried about kidnapping or this or, you know, God forbid, you know, whatever. But the world is different. The world has become dangerous. And in this conference and talking about, you know, training children and classical education, it was really encouraging because it's easy to just be hopeless, right? It's, it's, well, the first option that you have, kind of like red pill, blue pill, and I'm, I'm talking about like the matrix analogy, Neo, you know, you can take the blue pill and you'll go back to sleep, get plugged back up into the matrix and, you know, and just ignore all the problems in the world, right? That's if you take the blue pill. The red pill is you're going to get unplugged from the matrix and you're going to know all the problems. Uh, and that's been happening these last few years. In a proverbial sense, a lot of people are taking that red pill and waking up. And they're like, oh my goodness. Like we, we, were, we were asleep at the wheel for a long time, but there's some nefarious um, players in this game and this is happening, that's happening. We were lied to about this. The difference between a conspiracy and the truth is approximately three to six months. Like people are waking up. People are waking up. Here's the problem though. People are taking this red pill and waking up. It's quickly followed by a black pill. A lot of people are waking up. You, you talk to them or you read them on social media or whatever, and all they talk about is just how things are hopeless. And if they have any hope at all, it's, it's, it's in a rapture. Jesus is going to come back and rapture us, and it's probably going to be in the next you know, 20 to 30 minutes. And that's it. That's the only hope. Everything that they say, this is happening, it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do to stop it. It's going to get really bad. In fact, it's going to get worse. And, and, and it's like, but we just, but we pat ourselves on our back and we pride ourselves, uh, not because we're strong, not because we have a plan, not because we could win, uh, but just because we know. Like, I'm, hey, follow me. Why? You have a plan for victory? No, because I know how bad things are and I know the most bad things. Like the entire, entire ministries, entire organizations, entire social media pages, all websites and institutes, all, all geared around that. That's just the conservative play. But what do the conservatives do? Conservatives boast in being fully aware about how we're going to lose. 
Oh, we're losing now. We're also going to lose uh, a little bit later and we're going to lose precisely in this way and blah, 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 blah. And, and we don't build. We beg. We beg for donations. We, we, we sound the alarm for boycotts. So, so you, you, the, the, the playbook for conservatives is this. Number one, and you can't skip this, this step. It's, it's imperative to the conservative playbook. Get beat. Lose. And conservatives are fantastic at that. So first you lose. You get beat. Then, then you bemoan. You complain about how bad the world, then you beg, right? You beg for donations, you boycott, right? And, and, then, and then you get beat again. And you just, and it's a cycle and it starts back over. That's, that's it. But for those of us who have a hopeful eschatology, those of us who believe that Christ wins and not winning despite a weak, shriveling church, but that he wins actually progressively throughout human history through his church, that I will build, not just sustain my church as it's on the ropes, but I'll actually build, advance, increase my church. And the gates of Hades, meaning hell is on the defensive. Gates are not weaponry. They're defensive measures. The, the, the church is on the offense. It's building and growing. And hell on the defense, its gates will not be able to sustain the battering ram of the church of Jesus Christ as he builds it. Those of us who believe that way, that the church, Christ is victorious through the church. We all, if you're a Christian, you believe Christ wins. The question is this, do you believe Christ wins despite a losing church or Christ wins progressively throughout human history through a building church? I believe the latter. So for us, we've taken the red pill. We don't believe this because we're naive. We don't think, hey, we're winning because we, we're, we're ostriches with our head in the sand and we, we don't know about you know, the World Economic Forum and we don't know about this and we don't know. No, we know. We're aware things are bad. We get it. But at a certain point, you got to move the conversation from things are bad to how do we win? How do we win? The red pill is necessary. Don't take a blue pill and go to sleep again and get plugged back. You got to take the red pill. But here's, here's the vital piece of information that a lot of evangelicals are missing. You follow up the red pill, not with the black pill of despair, but with the white pill of hope that Christ wins through his church. And that's what we see with Israel. Israel doesn't just attack, but they run them down. They finish the fight. They don't just leave in the name of empathy, in the name of love, in the name of inclusion, in the name of this, in the name of that. They don't leave their enemies to regroup and regather and re-multiply uh, and strengthen and then take them out at a future time. No, they finish the fight. And God, the whole reason why the son, I don't want us to miss this, the reason why God actually answers a man, it's a big deal. The Joshua, the, the, the Lord, it says, never since that day has the Lord heeded the word of a man. Think about why. The whole reason God, the God of the universe, heeded the word of a man to stop the sun and the moon and the sky, to, to lengthen the day. There's one reason, so that his enemies could be further slaughtered. So we're talking about a miraculous unique event in all of biblical history with the sole purpose of more killing of bad guys. That's the purpose. Why? Because God is glorious and he loves his people. That's why. God is glorious and he loves his people. And he does not want his people to be slaughtered in the future because, because they wounded the snake, but didn't cut off its head. Because they, they gave certain blows, but not the death blow. And I'm not advocating to take this in a literal sense. I'm not talking about taking up arms. Again, disclaimer, disclaimer. What I'm saying, though, is that as Christians, when it comes to legislation, 
when it comes to culture, when it comes to education, when it comes to family, when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to sin in our own individual lives, as we seek to mortify sin in sanctification at every level, let's give the death blow. Don't be satisfied to sequester and subdue and quarantine sin. Kill it. Don't be satisfied to say, well, we've got a heartbeat law. No, no, no. Abolish abortion. Don't be satisfied to say, well, our public school's not too bad. I mean, they teach some evolution and there's no mention of Jesus. And the last teacher that mentioned Jesus, she got fired. But it, no, 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 no. Christian education. There is no neutral. At every level, run them down. That's what the Israelites did. That's why God stopped the day simply so that there would be more time for his children to run down their adversaries, to thoroughly defeat them so that his people might flourish in the land. And that's what we're called to do in a political sense, a cultural sense, a spiritual sense, a moral sense in our own lives and sanctification at every level. That is a lesson for us not to miss. Lastly, the very last thing. Now the kings are coming out, okay? The kings are coming out of the cave. They move the stones. They've, they've run everybody down. There's only a few people left in the city. They'll take care of that later. They're too few to be able to regroup and mount any serious attack. Everything is completed. Every, every I is dotted. Every T is crossed. There's only one thing left. The five Amorite kings that they locked into this tomb, this cave. So now they move the stones. Joshua says to his men, bring out the king, bring them before me. And Joshua has them lay down on the ground. Let's look at the verse. This is verse 24. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to his chiefs, so not every single man in Israel, he says to all of them, but then particularly to his chiefs, the chief of, of the men of war, kind of his captains, Joshua being the general, who had gone with them, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings, literally. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. John Gill, in commentating on this particular portion of our text, he says this, Joshua and his war chiefs, uh, he had his war chiefs place their feet on the necks of the five Amorite kings, not in a contemptuous or insulting manner, nor through vanity or pride or haughtiness, but for the mortification of the kings, that is to kill them, and as a token to their extreme subjection, that the kings would know you're not in power, you're under us, and as a proper punishment to their crimes of idolatry, tyranny, and cruelty. Don't forget, these are wicked kings. And by way of terror to others of the kings of Canaan. So other kings would hear of this and know you're next. Our feet are on their necks and our feet tomorrow will be on your necks too. So it was to frighten, strike fear into the future kings, other kings in Canaan that would be put to death that should fight against Israel. And as a pledge, this is the last piece, as a pledge and confirmation of the subjection of the rest. 
that these tribes had fallen and these kings were made subject by God and his supernatural power to his children, Israel, and all the other kings, the same thing would happen with them. That the subjection of these kings was indicative of the subjection of every king in Canaan. The land had been promised by God to his people and he would give them strength to overcome every adversary they would ever face. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, it's a fulfillment. Joshua 10 is a fulfillment. This moment of their feet on the necks of these Amorite kings is a fulfillment of what the Lord spoke through Moses while they were still in the wilderness. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This is what the Lord promised to Israel and this is what the Lord accomplished through Joshua. And this is what the Lord has promised to his true Israel, the church, and what he has and will continue progressively throughout human history, accomplished through the antitype of Joshua, the true Yeshua, the true deliverer, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And it's important, especially for fathers now, as we land the plane and finish the sermon today, for fathers, it's important that you teach your children that things are hard, and that we, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of difficulty, we persevere. But it's also important to remind them that when they overcome, to, to take note of that, to not pass over too quickly over our victories. Yes, we want to remember our weakness. We need to be repentant people. The Christian life does have a cross and we're called to take it up daily and follow Christ. But it's not only a cross, it also has an empty tomb. It also has resurrection. We don't die just to die. We die with Christ so that we might be raised with him to walk in newness of life. And yes, we still sin. And yes, we still experience defeat. And yes, it keeps us humble like the apostle Paul who was given sovereignly by God a thorn in his side to teach him affliction and humility. But we also by God's grace and his grace and strength alone, we do experience victories in this life. And when we do, we should write them down, remember them. When your child, especially your sons for fathers, when he has his, his first moment of triumph, there's something difficult that he's, he's been frustrated by, he's been struggling with, and he's able to overcome that, write it down, take a picture, tell a story, to, uh, celebrate, get a cake that evening, you know, do something special at the dinner table with the family. Like, have him in the proverbial sense, not just win, but have a moment with your son where you say, son, go ahead and put your foot on the neck on the neck of that thing that you've just conquered. And remember that, that these other things will be conquered too. Many of them by Christ's power, not your own, but Christ's power through you will be conquered in your life. And anything that's not, it will eventually be conquered by Christ. And the last of his enemies that will, he will conquer is death itself. We are victorious in Christ. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And we are called to trample serpents and scorpions. Yeah, that, that verse has been misapplied. I understand. Pentecostals, not all of them, but, you know, a sliver, 1%, you know, have some, some snakes passing them around in a serpent. I understand, but that's still a Bible verse and you got to do something with it. We're going to trample on the adder, trample on scorpions and serpents. We're called to be victorious. There are valleys, but there are also mountains. We're weak, but he is strong. There is a cross, but there's also an empty tomb and resurrection. We're the children of God. Yes, we are like sheep among wolves, but we're also called to be soldiers, 
The church is triumphant and will rest in heaven, but the church on earth is militant and it fights. And it fights not just so that it can lose. We fight because sometimes by the grace of God, we win. And we have won. That's the only reason we have so many blessings in the West today is because other Christians fought. The Puritans fought. The Reformers fought. The Pilgrims fought. The Covenanters fought. The Founders fought. Right? This notion that everything is just on a, on a, on a straight line down, a trajectory of, of constant degradation, getting worse and worse and worse from the time of Christ for the last 2,000 years, that can't explain the West. That, that just doesn't work. You cannot hold that view and hold it logically, much less biblically. You cannot say everything has gotten worse since the time of Christ. It hasn't. It hasn't. God's sovereign. We don't, we don't make things happen. I understand that. But who's to say? He's done it before. He could do it again. Our job is to be faithful. God can send revival. It is a viable possibility. God can send reformation. America could repent. Millions of people could be born again. He's done it. And he hasn't just done it in some distant land, uh, you know, 8,000 years ago. He's done it here and he did it recently. This very land just a few hundred years ago well, had some of the most famous revivals of all of history. George Whitfield, John Wesley, Guys going up the coast and preaching and people in masses coming to Christ in genuine salvation. Entire governments and policies and laws being orchestrated where, where the number one piece of literature cited is, is the book of Deuteronomy. It's not just God could hypothetically do it. He has done it. He did it here and he did it recently. And by his grace, he could do it again. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't, then let it not be because of our failure, our compromise, and our apathy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be like Israel in this instance, not many others, but in this particular instance, and running down the enemy, thoroughly defeating sin, thoroughly defeating your enemies, everything that stands in opposition to the truth of your word, and gaining courage by putting our fate on the necks of pagan kings that might represent in our day ideologies, godless pagan ideologies that, that directly contradict your word, the Christian worldview, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say that, that giants actually can be killed. Dragons actually can be slain. That you put giants and dragons in this world precisely for the point of dragon slayers and giant killers. Help us, Lord, to have courage and help us, yes, to be wary and careful for our children, but also not, not to be overcome with dread, not to be overcome with fear. That, yeah, the giants are, are looking as though they may be bigger for our children and their generation than they were for our generation. But that just means that our children may be given the immense privilege on, of uh, slaying bigger giants. You raise up titans simply for the purpose of showing your immense power through your people when you defeat them.
Your word says, for this reason, I set up and sustained and built Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Why? Just so you could show off when you caused Egypt to come to its knees. So Lord, help us to have that kind of faith as we seek to be faithful in our world, knowing that you, you are the one who grants victory. Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.